Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Karma Sense Wellness Foodcast. I'm Davey H. and this episode is all about traceability. Pink Floyd from the 1977 album Animals. The song is called Pigs. Welcome to the Foodcast. Today we'll be talking about pigs, but as a part of a larger discussion on traceability, a hot buzzword in the foodie world. We'll also further work through my personal omnivore's dilemma. We'll do all this by meeting Ed Morgan. Ed and his wife Becky run Quicken Farm in Shanks, West Virginia. They raise hogs, and Ed brings them to a small meat processor called Hampshire Meats, where the hogs are slaughtered and prepped before delivery to our subject on Foodcast episode 24, The Farmer's Daughter, Market and Butcher. In this episode, I talk to Ed and visit him at Hampshire Meats to learn about the slaughter and preparation process. While there is some technical description of the slaughter process, I didn't include actual recordings of it. When we get to the parts that I think people might be a little squeamish about, you know, where we're actually talking about how the pig gets slaughtered and processed, I try and give a warning first. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, rant. The Omnivore's Dilemma and Traceability. Let's start with the dilemma. The Omnivore's Dilemma is a term introduced by Michael Pollan in his book by the same name, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He says it's a book about what we should have for dinner, and that just doesn't pay it justice. The modern omnivore's dilemma is as follows. Technology allows people with even modest means to eat just about anything they want, whenever they want. That's a dilemma, because we might make a different choice if we had full transparency into how that food aligns with our values. What we want for ourselves, our loved ones, society at large, all living creatures, and the planet we call home. It's something I try to encapsulate in the so-called Save the World model in the Karma Sense Eating Plan which is available on Amazon or wherever juvenile nutrition books are sold, as if you didn't know. Transparency tells us everything we want to know about the food we eat, and maybe lots of things we'd rather not know. And we don't have that level of transparency. Big food does everything they can to distract us with bells and whistles, like the recently launched limited edition Marshmallow Peep Oreos. Lots of bells and whistles there. And amazingly, as unhealthy as that may sound, they have zero trans fat because they use a plant-based, mostly saturated fat, palm oil. Unlike trans fat, palm oil is natural. Natural is a meaningless, unregulated word. You can't trace it back to its source. And while palm oil does come from the graceful palm tree, the oil is highly processed and degraded by the time it gets in an Oreo. It may be a healthier option than hydrogenated trans fat, But the research so far implies that it's better, just like John Wayne Gacy was a better person than Ted Bundy because Gacy only killed 33 people and Bundy killed 35. And since exact body counts don't exist for either of those dudes, that comparison is more apt than those raw numbers. To meet demand for palm oil, 
deforestation is underway in much of the tropics. And while you may be someone who thinks climate change is a scam, you may be more on the fence about the increased air pollution, threat to natural habitats for animals, and the poverty and human rights abuse that no one doubts is the direct result of deforestation. But I suspect very few people think there's a halo effect associated with highly processed foods like Oreos. And I'm not trying to convince you to stop eating Oreos, he said, foreshadowing a future episode. However, you might consume fewer Oreos if you had full traceability into its manufacturing process. And without knowing it had a catchy word like traceability, I've been on a traceability journey in a very public way on occasional episodes of the Foodcast. It all started with the subject of meat on episode two of the Foodcast in which we met Taylor Hudnall, my neighborhood butcher. Here's a quick reminder. I'm walking over to Let's Meet on the Avenue to pick up some wild boar chops. It's over 100 degrees out, but I'm still walking because it's the neighborhood butcher. It kind of ruins the whole advantage of having a neighborhood butcher if I drive to it. Also, it lets me play with my cool wireless mic. I do love pork, but as you know, I love pigs too. I think we call cow meat beef and pig meat pork to distract us from the fact that we're eating a once living creature. But we still call chicken chicken. You think that's because chickens are assholes? I've always known that wild boar is a sustainable and more humane way to enjoy pig meat. There are millions of wild boar running around all over the country. They're mean and destructive animals. They cause erosion, destroy endangered and valuable plants, and have been known to kill people's pets. They're so rampant and destructive, many states have bounties on them. It would add insult to fatal injury if we simply disposed of the dead animal. At least that's my rationalization. The problem is, like most game, wild boar is very lean and it's hard to cook so that it stays juicy and maintains that porky flavor. Luckily, Taylor, my friendly neighborhood butcher, is guiding me in the process. Oh, little episode two podcast pup, you're so cute. In that episode, I outed that I'm conflicted about using animals for food and found one approach, eating invasive, destructive, wild animals, in that case, boar. I further explored my internal struggle in episode 18 when I interviewed jacked vegan Remy Rory about his dietary choice. Here's an oh-so-dramatic snippet. To be a vegan or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to allow animals to suffer the pain and indignity of factory farming, or to take arms against a disappearing species, and by opposing, preserve them. They die, yet they live. Don't worry, Kenneth Branagh. Your position as the modern-day Shakespearean actor of choice is secure. Less secure is a karma sense dude's conviction about eating meat. I'm jealous of my vegan friends who exploit no animal products, and even my vegetarian friends who move the bar to a different location by eating animal milk products and or eggs. They're driven by some priority that allows them to eschew animals as food and chew plants instead. I don't yet share that priority. I eat meat and other animal products, not so much because I love the taste of meat. I do it because of perceived nutrition benefits and convenience. So that's what I said back then. Furthermore, in that episode, I presume that a vegan's dietary choice is driven by the belief that eating a 100% plant-based diet is the most healthful, humane, and or sustainable choice. It's driven by one of those things, if not all of them. 
I further posit that if that's the case, there's a lot more gray area in each of those considerations than meets the eye, and I provide details in that episode. So if you're interested, give it a listen. I include a link in the show notes. From the standpoint of my personal instance of the KarmaSense Eating Plan Save the World model, making a humane choice is very important to me. And I don't have to be convinced that factory farming is cruel, but I do need to be convinced that so-called humane methods are actually humane. And not just to the animal, but to the people who bring them to my table. In episode 24, Farmer's Daughter, Pete Pacelli led me through the process of butchering a whole hog. The hog was already slaughtered and cleaned, but it still looked like a pig when we started. How did I feel about eating meat after that? Here's what I said then. My other goal for this trip was to continue my exploration on my relationship with using animals for food. Did this change my attitude? Well, I walked out of Farmer's Daughter with a cooler full of sweet capicola, pate campagna, Asian pork belly soup, a whole taproot farm chicken, because I still think chickens are assholes, and a jar of local honey. But just in case, I also picked up a container of nutritional yeast, a common flavor and nutrition enhancement used by vegans to get some extra vitamin B12 and to make food taste a little cheesy. I was expecting the butcher demo to turn me towards the veg side. As I experienced it, though, working with a decapitated half-carcass was still a little abstract. So that was my conclusion from the Farmer's Daughter episode. And that brings us to today. How will I feel when I trace my dinner's backstory back to when it was killed, cleaned, and cut? Will it still meet my standard for being humane? I'm tracing things back, and that's what the traceability movement is about. Traceability is a concept centered on the food supply chain. It's the ability to track any food through all stages of production, processing, and distribution, including importation and at retail. Traceability should mean that the movements can be traced one step backwards and one step forward at any point in the supply chain. It sounds like something we as consumers shouldn't really ever have to care about. And indeed, it's something targeted towards regulators and supply chain managers. But whenever we as consumers make a decision about what we're going to eat, and in making that decision we base it on any consideration besides pleasure or hedonic hunger, it's because we believe the chosen food will satisfy some condition. It contains nutrition we're seeking. It benefits some party we care about. It meets some value we hold dear, such as it's humane, sustainable, minimally processed, or doesn't line the pockets of the Klingons, Empire, Reavers, Sauron, or Tar Heels. When we make food decisions, we often depend on the claims on labels and menus to inform us of the things we care about. Gluten-free, pasture-raised, organic, natural, fair trade, or now with 20% more polysorbate 80. How do we know that these claims really hold up? Traceability. Some of these labels have very specific meanings. In the U.S., the federal government regulates the term organic. To earn this label, farmers must follow specific practices for several years before they're certified as organic. And these labels also do not mean specific things. Organic doesn't mean humane. I can buy an organic chicken that was tortured to death. Lack of an organic label doesn't mean failure to follow organic processes either. Many small farms can't afford the organic certification process, yet meet and exceed the requirements. Then other labels mean nothing. The term natural has absolutely no meaning when applied to food. There's no regulation. 
And then there are claims that aren't regulated by the government, but can be certified by third parties. Pasture-raised and humane are a few of them. So a carton of eggs can say pasture-raised, but unless they include a seal from an organization like Humane Farm Animal Care, who provides the certified humane label, the producer doesn't have to meet any standard for what defines a pasture. And if you're a poor, tortured soul like I am, then you sweat the details and realize that even a certified humane label doesn't necessarily meet my standard for humane, because if you're making humans work fields, pastures, and processing plants in dangerous near-slave conditions, you're not being humane. I know, it's a lot of work to care about the food you buy like this. You're not going to drive out to the processing plant, factory, or farm like I do. But I do hope you open your eyes, like in the movie The Matrix. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Is it the blue pill or the red pill? The red pill is up next. In this segment, I interview Ed on the phone, and we visit him at Hampshire Meats, where Ed works part-time to process his hogs, as well as animals brought in by neighboring farms. We'll start off with some interview, then I'll head out to Hampshire County, West Virginia, to visit the plant. But we're going to bounce back and forth between interview and the plant, just to keep the topics of discussion together. I think it provides greater continuity to this episode. If not, I assure you, my intent was not to give you whiplash. Let's start off learning a little bit about who Ed is. Ed Morgan, were you born and raised in West Virginia? I was raised in West Virginia. I was actually born a Navy brat. I was born in Adak, Alaska. And then I grew up a little while in uh, Reflavik, Iceland. But mom and dad uh, went through a divorce and ended up moving it down. Mom moved down with my grandparents. And uh, I've been a Hampshire Countyan for about 38 years. Are you now doing what you always wanted to do or... Did you have Absolutely. something else in mind? Yeah, no. Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream. But it's not in your blood or anything. All my family on my uh, my dad's side, they all farmed, you know, part-time. It was always, you know, come home from work and farm. But not really, uh, you know, a family heritage or anything. I uh, When I was in high school, I became very involved with the FFA program. And that was just kind of my niche. I was kind of wandering around a little bit, doesn't really know what I was wanting to do. And FFA kind of took me under their, under their wing as such, and just, I mean, I couldn't get enough. As, to this day, I still can't get enough ag. I can you know, tell. always doing something in, in ag. And FFA uh, is Future Farmers of America, right? Yep. How did you progress from wanting to do that to actually owning the farm and and working at the slaughterhouse on Tuesdays for Hampshire meats? <laughs> well, what it was was. Uh, uh, Becky and I actually, we had just, we were actually newlyweds. We were both cutting timber for our family business. And, you know, we were you know, just newly married and thinking, hey, we've got our whole life ahead of us. And we both kind of aspired. We always wanted to be a little different. So we decided that we were going to move to Homer, Alaska, move back north. And we had everything done. We were packing. Uh, we had our plane tickets. We had a job lined up. We were actually going up on the, my birthday. To, uh, to go meet with a realtor and close on a piece of ground. And about three weeks previous, I, before then, I was out riding a motorcycle one day, and we had looked for ground around home, never found anything that really suited us. 
and I was right out riding the motorcycle, looked down over the hill, and there was a um, a real estate sign. I'm like, oh, what the heck? We'll we'll give it a call. Well, one thing led to another. It was just about 40 acres. It actually had been in her family years ago, and the price was right, and the bank said yes. So it was just kind of one thing after another. Is like this is close to close to the family. We're always both pretty family oriented and it was just like well maybe we're not meant to go to alaska and we just started off there with three goats and 16 years later now we're running three other farms and and uh you know making a living at it and it, it really does seem like things came together especially with that being property that was in the family previously yeah it was really interesting because when we pushed the driveway in i was pushing the driveway and i there was an old like an old pit and we went to cleaning it out and it was the old house and we had talked to her grandma and the neighbors and everything and you know they're telling stories that used to be the the old ruckman store and her grandma was telling us stories about her being she was actually born in that house just a lot of a lot of family history right right there on that place that's the, the largest track left of that farm uh, to date now wow. the rest of it's been yeah sold into little tracks here little tracks there so it's not only a project in getting the farm up and running again, but you had some archaeology you were doing too. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, matter of fact, right now it uh, is beside the bathroom door is a uh, an old keg of nails that, uh, of course, the uh, the boards had rotted away, but the the nails are still there in the shape of the keg, and the three bands that hold held the keg together are still there you know kind of kind of an oddity so we brought it up to the house and cleaned it up and it just sits there in the house as a sort of a reminder so that's ed and let's learn more about the process of processing animals for meat specifically hogs it's 5 30 in the morning on tuesday and tuesday is the day that ed slaughters one of his quick and farm hogs for a thursday delivery to the farmer's daughter I'm heading out to Hampshire County, West Virginia. It's about a two and a half hour drive to watch that happen. Thinking this will give me the line of sight I need to make an informed choice on how comfortable I am with pork in my diet. So let's get going. You didn't think I could resist playing that, did you? So I arrived at Hampshire Meats, and Ed was kind enough to open up by giving me a tour. This plant was built in 84. One guy used to run it, Eddie Bean. He ran it for years. And Eddie got tired, started feeling it, and another fellow bought it, and he was doing really well. His wife was like the, his wife was the, the centerpiece of the business. And Miss Christie was awesome. She passed away and just, things just kind of went south. Yeah. And then Aaron bought it. 
why an IT guy would buy a slaughterhouse. Yeah, that's... <laughs> is that the ultimate... Is that not the ultimate midlife crisis? He's done a lot of things, though. He's done a lot of good stuff. It's just some of it's like, what are you thinking, man? <laughs> and, you know, it's always Raz the boss. It's good that we're all friends, so... I think in this business, you have to be, yeah. have to be friendly to everybody. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Imagine a tech guy going into meat processing. What next? A tech guy going into nutrition consulting and health coaching? Ed and his wife, Becky, raised the hogs at Quicken Farm. That was one of those hogs that you heard in the background. Many farmers stop at that point. They hand the live animal to a meat processing plant for slaughter. Ed does his own slaughter, and he does it for other farmers as well. Not just pigs, but cows and other animals. It's a choice he's made. Let's learn about how he made it. I know you worked at other slaughterhouses. Yeah, actually, it, it, FFA kind of was the the one that, you know, kind of exposed me to it in the very beginning. We used to, when I was in school, and we still do it with the kids now. Of course, you raise a hog for a, a hand bacon and egg sale. And the advisors always kind of took kids that showed an interest. If we wanted to, we could spend the day when our hogs went up to slaughter, and we could help Eddie Bean up there. And help him with the whole process, just as you were up there. It just, you know, is like it kind of exposed me to it. And then after I got out of college, I actually got a job in uh, Stephen City, Virginia, at a little mom and pop slaughterhouse, Gore's Processing. And those boys taught me; they taught me everything I know. And then, then got uh, got married, and we went to cutting timber, and got everything going. And Aaron bought the slaughterhouse, and he approached me and said, "Hey," he said, "I know you used to be in the business." Are you interested in helping me out? It's like, sure. I worked there a little while full time, but then you know, when I got hooked up with Pete and everything, I couldn't I couldn't do the farm as well as I wanted to. So I just cut get back to one day a week and just mainly do my hogs, make sure my hogs are done right. And you were telling me how much you love doing what you're doing. Why is that? Some people kinda of look at you strange, but I'm up there with those hogs from the moment they're born. And it just feels like it's an obligation to me to make sure that they have a, I guess, a, a quiet, respectful, peaceful end. And, uh, you know, I, I don't trust anybody else to do it. So, and, you know, that way it just, I know how much work goes into, you know, to making one of those pigs. I want to make sure that, you know, nothing goes awry. There's so many opportunities for things to go awry when the <laughs> little buggers are yeah. born and beforehand. So... Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's a seven-month seven month process just while they're here. It's a, another, you know, basically four months for them to, for, you know, while they're in the mama's bellies. It's, might as well say it's a year-long process. You can tell as Ed describes how he got into this line of business, how much respect he has for the animals. When he gave me a tour and walked me through the process, he did so with the same amount of respect. He'll describe it for the next minute and a half. If you don't want to hear it, skip ahead. Although I watched the whole process, I don't include any recording of it in this episode. So for the squeamish, this is as graphic as the episode's going to get. I hope you listen. This is where all the action kind of happens. Uh, just in a nutshell, we'll bring them in here. Actually, we have two cattle to, to process first. They won't take very long. Uh, we render them insensible in there. Uh, I pick them up with a hoist, pick them up, bleed them, uh, I remove the, uh, the tongue and 
and uh, separate the esophagus. And we pick it up and then we carry it over here to this cradle and we lay it down on the cradle and then me and EJ will skin it. We'll pick it up, pull the back off the skin, the, the skin off the back, goes over to the next little station over there is the evisceration. He'll eviscerate and then he'll saw it. While he's doing that, I'll go in and bring another one. That's with cattle and hogs, basically the same thing, render them sensible, raise them up, bleed them, and then we put them on the small hoist. We'll come over here, put them in the tank. Uh, the water, we like to keep it like 142 degrees. Uh, and then it's just kind of a, it's a, after a little while you'll get a feel for it, you can grab a hold of the foot. And just as soon as you can grab it and twist it like that, and that foot will come clean, the hog's ready. Okay. And we throw them over here. This is a really noisy, medieval thing. It uh, These paddles turn pretty quickly, and uh, they're on rubber, so they don't break anything. But it's assisting pulling the hair off. Okay. If we've done our job right, if we've done it right as slaughterman, and then I, I've done my job right as a farmer, the hogs should come clean. You know, if, okay. if their diet's not been right and stuff, you'll have hair stick, and then we have to we'll take it over there and shave it. Shave it. Let's note that these steps occur for every piece of meat we have the privilege to enjoy. The description of the steps may be the same, but what actually happens is very different. Many places have more automation in the process. And then there are a bunch that just treat the live animal like widgets on an assembly line. That's the meat that goes to most grocery stores and restaurants that don't otherwise promote their sustainability and humanity cred. Soaking all that in means a lot to me. I know the process can be so much more cruel, and that's not a way of doing business that I want to support, especially after meeting the animals, which we do next. We've got cattle back here. That for some reason, people have brought cattle in. They brought them in Friday. So we've had to feed them more of these guys since then. And uh, they're just crazy. <laughs> the, that one yeah. little calf in there. But most of the time, it's, it's something that we, we hold to. If anything's held over, they get feeding water. But Monday night, we'll pull anything. And that makes our job a lot easier, a lot cleaner, a lot more right. sanitary. Yeah. You don't have a great big full rooming. Now, my hogs are on the trailer. Okay. Uh, they, they may be a little special treatment. I think they, <laughs> I'm not a real big fan of holding water back. My hogs get water. You know, to, till, to about 7 o'clock this morning. Okay. I dump the bowl and I just bring them up. Okay. And like I said, I, I don't even unload my hogs. I just, they're on the trailer, they come off. They don't need to be in here. I, I have a responsibility to them. Yeah, well, they're, <laughs> they're smart guys. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah. It was like last week, you know, we have one lady, getting our cleaning lady, and she has a very soft heart. And occasionally you'll have a hog that just, and it has a personality. Yeah. I had this one last week, and I had just named him Samson. Ever since he's wee little. Samson. So Betty was here, and uh, I was bringing him in. I said, come on, Samson. Come on, get in there. And she looked at me, and she just gave me the ride. What the hell did you name it for, Rocky? <laughs> yeah. Listen to Ed describe how some processors choose to prepare the cattle, their decision to withhold feed and water to make the evisceration easier, and his choice to allow his hogs those extra hours of comfort with water up into the morning, demonstrates the amount of subtlety and nuance there is in raising the animals to become food. There's a lot of gray area between being driven by the bank book versus the good book when describing the procedure as humane. In the next segment, Ed describes the process of what he refers to as rendering the hog insensible, that is, 
stunning the hog in the quickest way and making sure he or she never feels pain. For the next minute or so, I'll describe what People for the Ethical Treatment of Animal, PETA, describes as the MO for most commercial high-volume processes. Then we'll hear what Ed does and why. First, PETA. A typical slaughterhouse kills about a thousand hogs per hour. The sheer number of animals killed makes it impossible for pigs' deaths to be humane and painless. Because of improper stunning, many hogs are alive when they reach the scalding hot water baths, which are intended to soften their skin and remove their hair. The U.S. Department of Agriculture documented 14 humane slaughter violations at one processing plant, where inspectors found hogs who were walking and squealing after being stunned with a stun gun as many as four times. An industry report explains that continuous pig squealing is a sign of rough handling and excessive use of electric prods. The report found that the pigs at one federally inspected slaughter plant squealed 100% of the time because electric prods were used to force pigs to jump on top of each other. Now, granted, PETA has an agenda to turn everyone into a vegan, but their description includes all the references for their claims. Now, here's Ed. Is that for stunning? Yeah, that's actually what uh, I purchased that to myself to, uh, to stun my hogs with. That way, you can keep the heads. You know, we can use the heads and, uh, and everything. And, uh, because if we actually shot them with a 22, we'd have to throw the heads away because there's that piece yeah, of Yeah, they're compromised. Yep. I'll add that Ed and the people at the Hampshire meat plant are really sensitive about rendering animals insensible. To paraphrase Eminem, they only get one shot. They can't miss the chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in the hog's lifetime. Hey, I said I'd try not to sing again on the show. I didn't say anything about rapping. And technically, I don't even think you can call that rapping. Anyway, Ed uses the bolt stunner on hogs. They use a 22 for beef and sometimes a higher caliber if it's really needed. Unlike factory operations, there are just three people working at the plant that day. EJ, who is working with Ed on the skinning, evisceration, and cutting process, and Sherman, who's a dedicated on-site inspector with the West Virginia Department of Agriculture. If Ed doesn't get the animal down in the first shot, Sherman steps in. The law requires an investigation. The plant may have to be shut down until a cause is found, and there are reassurances of no recurrence. There could be harsh fines and other penalties possible. By choosing this humane way to stun, our heroes in this tale expose themselves to risk. It's not just financial risk associated with regulation. There's market risk, too. Hogs raised like widgets are consistent from one to another. If a factory hog doesn't fit the spec of the buyer, it's tossed. When you treat a hog like an individual, its individuality asserts itself. Consistency is futile. The major buyers won't stand for inconsistency. Ed was lucky enough to find a buyer who was not only okay with it, but appreciated it. And he's a character Foodcast listeners met before. It was two salads you got, and then just, it was, a, it was probably six, eight months later. The stars aligned is all I could say. And we met Pete. And it was just, Pete was doing exactly where we wanted to do, and it was just, it was made in heaven. That's great. You know, and, uh, you know, it's been a learning curve for both of us. You know, he's like, you know, he he had things that he was expecting that, that I had to learn. And, and it's just a lot of butchers, and I guess that's kind of where Pete's unique. A lot of butchers, you know, doing the same thing 
every week and and Pete fully understands and the customers understand. It's like, hey guys, these aren't cookie cutters. You know, some weeks you're gonna get some that's just gonna be fat as I am. And other times you're gonna get some, you know, they're gonna be a little thinner. It's just, yeah. you know, and the seasons, and it's just nice. Yeah, gotta adapt. And it's gotta be good for him, because it's yeah some variety. Yeah. Gets to be creative. Oh, yeah. The things that God does. I call him the, the prince of foreseen perfection. Oh, it is. <laughs> Some of the curing they do is amazing. Oh, sandwiches and uh, we so missed out. He's like a double cooked pork sandwich with Swiss Manning. Bastard, he put it on Facebook. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, he said that was a teaser. He said, we've already sold out. <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> now it's time to meet the hogs. We step out back and Ed gets them from off the truck. And what you'll note is that there isn't a lot of squealing, a la the PETA description. Just a lot of happy snorts. I never saw an electric prod the whole time I was there. In fact, one of the cows Ed and EJ worked on earlier was being really stubborn moving onto the floor. Ed just leaned on her with his body and used nothing but patience to move her along. Let's listen to him get the hogs. While you do, note that Ed speaks with his hogs in English and Spanish. I told you pigs were smart. They have so much personality, it's why Ed sometimes gets the urge to name them like Samson. But to avoid the future wrath of the plant's cleaning crew, Ed didn't name these hogs. He marks them off with colored markers. But I've seen the movie Reservoir Dogs with Mr. White, Mr. Brown, and Mr. Pink. So these hogs have names as far as I'm concerned. I do dock tails. One of the way I can figure is separate the mail holes. Which one come out of the Actually, all out of raw. And long tail raws. What kind of pigs are these? Um, their mama was a. Uh, actually, these girls, I think, well, these guys, girls, yeah. Uh, their mama was a Yorkshire, all Yorkshire. And the uh, dad was a. Uh, Ollie's of the burke. I think you get the thickness in the hindquarters and the broadness in the shoulders from the burke and the, just the carcass. You know, it's like these, these guys have laid down a good bit of fat. About how much do they weigh? About 310 and probably like 290. February's kind of been a little bit of a slow month and it historically always is. I just I didn't use my crystal ball enough so I end up stuck with I have several pigs that was ready this time of year, and it's like, you know, Pete will have a cow if I start bringing in some, like, 350-pound dress carcasses. So Aaron called me up, and uh, he has a couple customers that need some hogs. So it's like, all right, yeah, I don't normally do this, but I've got extras. I need to move them. So that's what the others are in here for. Actually, one of these is his in the, the yellow, yellow butts in mine. Come on, 
gives me trouble. My pigs normally come in looking like rainbow bright. Because <laughs> I go through, and Monday night I have a routine. It takes me about, about an hour, hour and a half. And I go in and, and uh, I'll pull in a, a group of pigs, just a big cut of pigs. And I go through, and it's like, okay, Pete needs two this week. Now I might pull out eight. And then I put them into a bird and a pen. And I go through, like, for, like last night was red markers. Reds is good. And then I go down to another color. <laughs> just keep weaving them down. I've been real happy with the, the birth. Um, it took a little getting used to because they are a little slower on the growth. You know, their feed conversion. Actually, uh, penciling it out, their feed conversion is just about comparative to all the rest of the white breeds. Uh, but uh, their, their, what do they call it? Their muscle, muscle to fat ratio for the feed conversion. That right. sucks. Because they lay down a lot more fat than they do uh, do their muscle in uh, in, you know, in ratio. But and then we train we constantly changing feeds and uh, my vet Isaiah is giving me hell about that. He's like you you really should think about sticking with one feed. And it's like and he can't answer me this question. I said Isaiah. I said but you want to eat a bloody sandwich every day of your life? He can't, he can't answer. Right. Me. So I changed my feet up, not drastically. Uh, instead of 400 pounds of soybean meal, I'm going to put 300 pounds of soybean meal and 100 pounds of you know, distillers off of the moonshine still down here. Uh, put that in just a little different flavor profile. Um, we're working with Galvin right now. I'm really excited about that um, because uh, he's, he has a, a legal still. And uh, I've been going to, I'm starting to get his mash. Uh, I just got to do some more homework because you get carried away with feeding the mash and then you end up with soft pitch that doesn't set up real hard. Right. And, and, uh, but I'm really excited about using that because it'll be West Virginia grown corn on West Virginia for West Virginia steel and West Virginia hogs. Right now we're West Virginia grown corn and I think Virginia grown beans. And we get our bean meal from Rockingham Co op. Had the one feed dealer. He wanted to set me up with a feed. And it was one for us. We tried it. We tried six ton of it. And for the whole time, that hogs just had to run. They weren't happy. They were always, always hungry, never satisfied. Yeah, they were always constantly at the feed. But they were just, you know, what was coming in was just shooting right out. Why does the vet want you to... Stick because to it's one more formulated than he's like, oh, but it has a, I can't remember, it's basically paling, it's what's in that feed, and I know it is. And Russia actually banned our ex, our in, us importing any pork into Russia, because a lot of these commercial houses use this paling base, and it's to muscle these hogs up. Right. And you know, Isaiah's like, oh, you'll get much better if it's, no. Old school Isaiah, I, old school. Yeah. Yeah. He has got me on a vaccination program. Uh, I use, I do give my sows um, 30 days for breeding. I use, uh, what is, it's made by Zoetis, it's called Pharaoh Gold. And uh, it just, uh, it protects her from the case you ever get aerosols. 
Oh. And that actually, I do run a risk of doing that because my hogs are out. You know, any decaying material right. they can get into and it can carry that. Yeah. So, so oh. it was a hard sell on my part, but I feel pretty confident with it. You know, the girls, all the girls get it, and the boars also get it. They get fresh for the only other medicinals we do is if there's a sick pig, we do try. And uh, to say that I, I, I feel, you know, you know, I don't use antibiotics, that I would be lying, and I'm not gonna lie. I use antibiotics, that I think the best way to say it, I use antibiotics safely and responsibly. Right. You know, if you've got a headache, if you've got a thumping headache, you're going to take an aspirin. Sure, yeah. You use it responsibly, you don't abuse it. You're using it to treat something and not to prevent. Exactly, yeah. And it, I think with good husbandry, your chances of having to treat, there's, there's your prevention with good right. husbandry. Sometimes I think, I wonder if they know. And if they do, they seem to be pretty chill about it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Much more relaxed than that first cow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, you know, we try not to act any differently. We're not allowed to bring the hogs in the kill room until all remnants of the cattle that were slaughtered before are cleaned away. Well, waited, you may have noticed that as soon as Ed started talking about vaccinations and shots, the hog had a lot more to say. I told you, they're smart. We also learned how he feeds the hogs and keeps them healthy. He takes pride in the amount of traceability he has into that feed. We learn a little more about how important that is next. Is there some aspect of the business that you haven't had a chance to do yet that you'd like to do? Yeah, in a sense, I'm, I don't know if I'll ever be able to, but I would like to be a little more, you know, a little more self-sustainable. I would love to be able to have the, the opportunity to maybe to grow some of my own crops, you know, maybe put in 20 acres of corn, you know, to then that way, you know, everything, everything that I'm feeding is, is home raised. Uh-huh. Uh, right now it's just, I don't have the ground and I don't have the equipment, but I think I would really, you know, if it, you know, ever a, a long-term goal, maybe to put, you know, put some more of our own feed in. You're not a control freak or anything, are you? No, actually, <laughs> no. <laughs> pretty, pretty cool. I just, I, anymore, Dave, I swear, I, there's just so much stuff going on. It's like, you know, it. Everybody's worried about, for example, like their, the wholesomeness of their food. Right. And it's like, you know, I've seen so many crooked things go on. Yeah. And it's like, wherever I'm involved, if I can control that or I can be 100% for sure, when I tell somebody, yeah, that's what it is, I won't be able to tell them that with 100% confidence. Yeah, you can really stand behind the product. And, and for people who really care about their food, they love to, yeah. they love to see that and hear that. Yep. You know, is when somebody asked me, well, well, you know, had a gentleman was at Pete's last week and then had a gentleman talking about it. And it's like, yeah, I'll be able to tell you everything. And guy kind of gave me a strange look, but, you know, I told him where I get my feed, told him where the pigs are born, everything. We try to be very transparent. If somebody wants to know something, yeah, you know, you always have your ups and downs. You know, uh, last winter we lost several litters of pigs, and that was just due to mismanagement, for example. I, I didn't get the girls bred properly. They end up pigging in the middle of the winter, and we had a pile of babies, you know, expire on us just due to exposure. It's just, it's a gamble. And you just pray to God, 
come on, you know, give me an easy winner, you know. <laughs> when the kill room was finally cleaned up, it was time for the first hog to be let in. She didn't take a lot of coaxing, and as I said earlier, there's no need to record the process from there. I experienced it, and I will still recant the sequence. Ed stuns the hog with the bolt stunner, and she gets hoisted up in the air onto a pulley system from her hooves. Ed makes a cut in the chest to start draining the blood, and once the bulk of it's drained out, the hogs move to the scalding tank. She's lowered down, and Ed and EJ tend to her until the hair comes off with a gentle pull. The hogs then moved into a device that spins her around and removes as much hair and other detritus from the skin as possible. Next, they remove the shells, or toenails if you will, before cleaning the skin by hand. As one final step to clean the exterior, they use a torch to burn off the finest of hair, and then they hose her off. She gets pulled back up on the pulley system by her rear legs, and EJ removes the head, splits her in half, removes any of the innards that aren't allowed or intended for delivery. He hoses down the inside and moves her halves into the chiller where she'll remain until Thursday. That's it. Happens with every pork chop, spare rib, and pulled pork sandwich you eat. Happens in a similar vein with every burger, gyro, and T-bone you have. Are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? We'll find out soon, but let's do a little more visiting with Ed. What would you say is your favorite unusual or off-cut? Crosscut smoke shanks. Yeah, those are, those because are, we do them on the wood stove. Uh-huh. Make a pot of beans, put put the shanks in there, or the trotters, and, you know, in the wintertime, yeah. that pot of beans may sit on there for maybe a day, <laughs> you know. They all smell so good, and you've got, uh, you've got lunch and dinner for a couple of days there. Uh, it almost makes me wish it was cold this winter, so that... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's funny because I I just bought some uh, for exactly that purpose to cook up with a pot of beans. I also got some tails. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah, the butcher here is encouraging me to make these uh, Arancini, you know, Italian rice balls with the tail meat. Oh, uh, yeah. Have you ever tried sweetbreads off a hog yet? I haven't yet. I'm a little organ squeamish, but I know I need to get there. I know I need to get there. there. I would think actually that... The sweetbreads may be might be a good transition for you because they don't have a they're not an overly they don't have a whole lot of flavor uh-huh. and the texture of them is is okay. okay it's not really you know creamy or nothing like that it's pretty mild I know I need to try it you we were talking the other day and you you were checking in to make sure that I wasn't going to go vegan and I think yeah. I'm not but <laughs> what it did really drive me to do is really appreciate the whole you know. No waste, no waste at all. Cherish yeah. the whole animal. So that's uh, yeah. It's and it's like with Pete, you know it. it it's so it's so much nicer because you know we'll do those custom animals and you know a lot of times people don't want the head and they you know we just have to dispose of it. But you know my hogs come in and when they leave they're recognizable as the same hogs that walked in. Right. You know. Anything else you want people who might be listening to this? You want them to know? Nah, I can't really think of anything other than buy local whenever they can. Yeah. You know what I mean? Local and get to know, not just your butcher, but see if your butcher tell you, tell you who the farmer is, yeah. who the producer is. And uh, it's uh, it's great because you get to meet uh, great people when you do it. I really appreciate time, Ed. I look forward to talking to you in April and maybe getting to meet Absolutely. Becky too. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Dave, we'll talk with you later. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 
Ed asked me as I was leaving the plant what my impression was of the whole process. I told him it made me think a lot, but watching it with two heads of beef and two hogs was not going to change my approach to eating. It wasn't that it was a happy process, but when I was approaching it with a professional eye, I felt at peace with how it sat within the circle of life and all that stuff. In fact, on my way home, I stopped at Farmer's Daughter and purchased some of their amazing tasso ham and a Korean marinated skirt steak. We had the steak for dinner that night, and I shared the day with Mrs. H., not in graphic detail, more along the lines of the great people I met. But as I ate that tender, perfectly seasoned steak, I can't deny a pang of sadness about the noble creatures I saw that day. And so, I still plan to include animal products in my diet, but I'll continue to trace, and I'm on a newfound quest against waste. We'll talk about that more in a future episode. And in yet a different future episode, we'll visit Ed at Quicken Farms and trace another step back into the supply chain. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Foodcast. I'd love to get questions, critiques, and suggestions. If you want to support this hot mess, please share, subscribe, and review the Karma Sense Foodcast on iTunes. It's not that hard to do that review. You can just click on five stars and move on if you want to throw in a couple sentences. That's great, too. I want to thank Ed and in abstentia, his wife Becky Morgan for tolerating me. I also want to thank EJ and Sherman for their patience. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. Until next time, remember what your old friend Rage Against the Machine always says. <laughs>